When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. How is a trade war affecting the way China innovates? As the Western world pushes back against China, we're pushing China into a corner. We're pushing China to be more innovative than ever. And how is this sound... helping scientists to tackle the problem of stolen sand. Hello, I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor of The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage on Economist Radio, our podcast on technology and science. But first, it's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's a flying taxi. Or, well, maybe it could be. New planes, described as flying taxis or passenger drones, are in production in cities across the world, and they could take passengers from places like airports right into the center of cities as early as 2023. Paul Markley is The Economist's innovation editor, and he's been writing about it for this week's Economist. Hello, Paul. Hello, Ken. So, Paul, are these going to be like painted yellow, looking like the old Manhattan cabs? Or what will they actually physically look like? Well, that looks like fun, but I don't think they will be. No, they'll probably be white blobs with um, lots of little rotors sticking out. They will be about the same size as a helicopter, but unlike a helicopter, you don't have that big rotor and that nasty tail rotor spinning around. These will have lots of multiple rotors, you know, 10, 20, 30 in some cases, but they're very small and they're very compact and they're very stable with all those rotors. So they... um, Unlike a helicopter, you could probably fly one of these in a couple of hours training, Ken. Paul, everyone likes the idea and everyone has one question in their mind. Safety. Well, like all aircraft, you basically don't want to build something that's going to crash. But there are rules and regulations. Now, for a sports aircraft, the rules are slightly different. But for those that are carrying passengers and fare-paying passengers, which is what the idea is with these, the rules are very strict. And like all aircraft, they will have to be fully certified and their operations will be have to be covered by existing air regulations. So they will need to be safe in order to get certified for use by MIAMIU. What is the distance of these passenger drones? How long does it take to get from one place to another, so the velocity of them? And how much might a flight cost? The sort of vehicles they're looking at are between two to five seats. Now, whether one of those seats is occupied by a pilot or not remains to be seen. But the distance is 30 kilometres to about 100 kilometres. They fly about 100 kilometres per hour. But ideally, therefore, short trips around urban areas, flipping from one place to another. A bit like you would hail an Uber. In fact, Uber is looking at um, flying these things themselves. And do we have any sense of how much it might cost to go from one place to another in a flying taxi? 
it's going to have to be competitive with um, other forms of transport, as you see. But it's obviously going to be a fairly sort of upmarket special thing, although not as expensive as you going to Manhattan and using a helicopter to flip over to JFK Airport. Now, other than the regulatory issues for safety, what are some of the other challenges of bringing this sort of technology to market? It's not hugely technological. It's mainly regulatory. That's where the big challenges lie. Is Because these things will be flown in urban environments, there is the danger that they clash with um, other aircraft and buildings and there's big safety implications. So they've got to be merged into existing air traffic control. Now, that's being worked on by NASA and other people and will be solvable with technology. But regulation, well, you know, it's very hard to get a helipad in some cities at the moment. I mean, try that in London. You might have trouble. But a vertipad, which is the flying taxi equivalent of a helipad, some are already being planned and built in certain cities. Singapore will have one soon and Seoul, Guangzhou in southern China. And so we may see some cities prepared to move faster than others, maybe because the sound of these things buzzing overhead to them is the sound of progress. Before I get to the question of the sound, because that's an issue, the difference between a helipad and a vertipad sounds like it's just a difference of several letters. What actually is the difference? It's a little bit more than that. A helipad is, I mean, that could be on the top of a skyscraper and you just fly in, jump out, jump in. That's what you might do if you're Donald Trump. Now, a vertipad is going to be a bit more sophisticated than that. It will need to link in with sort of ride sharing services on the ground. You'll need to land more than one flying taxi. You'll need to be able to park them. You need to be able to recharge them. So it's a slightly more sophisticated operation that you need there than just a, a round circle with H printed on it. And what about the noise pollution? Won't this just increase the din of the cityscape? It could do. It remains to be seen, really. I mean, because they're electrically powered, they should be, in fact, much quieter than a helicopter. But, you know, if you've ever experienced a small drone going overhead, you'll notice it does buzz. So you won't be able to get rid of all the sound. How much of that sound will be tolerated by people living in cities? Well, that's a question for those cities and the leaders of those cities. And who are the companies that are bringing this to market? And is there background coming from the automotive industry or the aviation industry? It's all over, really. You've got Uber on one hand, which is already a, a ride-hailing app. I mean, they're interested. You've got other operators and startups coming in. Geely, which is a Chinese car maker, has recently bought into one of the German companies that's producing a flying taxi. So you're seeing companies in the sort of transportation services area move into this because they do see it as a new market. It's a potentially very big market and possibly a lucrative one. 2023 sounds like a pretty quick date for these things. Is that realistic? Well, they're flying already. Um, some are in experimental form. They're already flying. If they're going to pilot on board, the certification process will be faster. A lot more experience is going to have to be had before we take the pilot out and probably let these things fly autonomously. That will require more field tests, more trials. So what cities are pioneering this that would be the first ones to deploy it commercially? Uber are hoping to get going in Los Angeles and Melbourne in Australia. New Zealand uh, is a possible another country that may be fairly on. Dubai and uh, Singapore are amongst the uh, first candidates. I would totally think it would be outside the U.S. U.S. regulators would be a little bit slower, a little bit more cautious. I would have thought China and Dubai and Singapore. 
China and Dubai may be more free-flowing, shall we say. They may allow something more adventurous. But uh, it's quite possible in America they may allow something that flies on a very fixed route along a very narrow, careful corridor that is piloted. Some of the other cities might go a bit further and perhaps allow more adventurous flights and perhaps even autonomous flights faster than the other. We'll see a bit of competition to be the first with the technology. And where's Europe with all of this? You would think that all these smart engineers who are German, French, and Spanish, for that matter, in Airbus and Toulouse would be the ones who'd be tinkering away, trying to pioneer this. Oh, Airbus is working on it too, and, and many of companies in Germany and France, and there's a queue of companies in Britain want to trial these services as well. So Europe is there too, but the regulations may take a bit longer to allow these things to get airborne. Even with a pilot, when it's ready for commercial launch, let's say 2023, would you get in one? I'm trying to get a ride in one already, uh, an experimental one. So I'm working on that. That sounds great. Bring me along. Okay. <laughs> Fab. Thanks a lot, Paul. Thank you, Ken. You can read more about flying taxis in the upcoming edition of The Economist. And if you like our journalism and you're not a subscriber, you really should be. Just go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. And if you already do subscribe, thank you. Consider taking out a gift subscription. It gives us the means to produce more of our work. Next up, the trade war between China and the United States has been escalating in the wake of tariffs from Donald Trump. Most recently, Chinese exports fell by 1% in August as shipments to the U.S. began to slow down. But despite this, China still hopes to be able to assert its dominance in business. Will it be able to come out on top in this tech and trade war? Rebecca Fannin has been covering technology in China for years and is the founder of Silicon Dragon, which provides research about China and other innovation hubs. Her latest book is Tech Titans of China. It explains the country's ambition in everything from social commerce apps to drones and robots. Hello, Rebecca. Hello, Ken. So let's start, Rebecca, with this. Most people in America are worried that China is going to eat their lunch in terms of technology. Should American technology companies be worried? I think they definitely should be worried. I think that this is a wake-up call for the U.S. to see how far China has progressed in the past decade or so. I think that this is amazing to Silicon Valley that they've had their eyes opened. And I think corporate America is uh, feeling the same way. In what areas do you think that China might dominate American technology companies? China is definitely getting ahead in AI, AI implementation in particular. Electric vehicles is another area, and facial recognition, of course. All of these things are coming up from China very strongly. Now, many of our listeners know of some of the big names like Alibaba and Baidu and Tencent, but maybe not some of the smaller companies that should be on their radar screen. Who are they and what do they do? They should take a look at a company called Pinduoduo, which is in social commerce. Uh, this is a new area that was created in China. It combines gaming and social media and e-commerce all in one app. And it's very popular in the rural areas. The same with another company called ByteDance. It's considered the new B of the China bot, the original China bot of Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent. The new B is ByteDance. And ByteDance is the creator of TikTok a 15-second video app that's gone global. And that's another one really to watch. There's been questions whether Chinese companies play fair, both domestically and internationally. Let's first look at what's going on in China. Domestically, it seems like it's gladiatorial that there's sort of no restraint on what they won't do to a competitor. 
This is true. When you're in China and you're competing with these warriors, <laughs> watch out. Uh, anything goes. Uh, stealing talent, price cutting to the point where you know a company gives up. This is what happened with Uber and Didi in China. Uber basically sold to Didi, and they just gave up after a few years. And this has been a pattern of American companies or Western companies in China for many years now. So how does a Western company compete in the Chinese market, or should they just not even go in? They really need to have a local management. This is an issue that actually hasn't been learned quite yet. Have a local management. Have a local strategy. Don't look to California or corporate headquarters for every yes or no, because it's just going to slow you down, and you're not going to be able to race ahead of your fierce Chinese competitor, your tech titan there. But are the best Chinese employees, whether executives or engineers, willing to work for a foreign company or will there be the hometown bias? Well, in China, it used to be that working for a Western company was considered very prestigious. And I think that that's changed now because we've had this growth of these national champions from China. And now in China, it's, you know, it's considered great. You get a job with Meituan, the super app. You get a job with Didi. You get a job with Xiaomi. You know, that's great. So it seems like Western companies are going to have a hard time hiring the best managers, even if they're local, or the best engineers compared to the competition. Yes, that's true. And I think since we have this pushback against China and its growing technology edge, I think, you know, we have this tech cold war going on. And now I think we're starting to see Western managers reluctant to go into China and reluctant to set up businesses there and to move there, move their families there and take these jobs that we had in the past. Now, what about internationally? There's this view that when Chinese companies compete abroad that they steal intellectual property wantonly. Is that an outdated view or is that still true? In the past, this was true. Counterfeiting was rampant. Stealing technology ideas and uh, iterating from them was also very um, common. But now today, China's gone ahead and they're inventing their own, inventing their own ideas, their own business models. And today they have their own IP to protect. If you look at the worldwide patent applications, China is way up there, number two in the world, right behind the U.S. China has 21% of the patent filings last year, uh, compared to the U.S. at 22%. And China could surpass the Western world entirely, number one in patent filings. So definitely China is an innovative uh, country today. It's moving very fast. And the West is catching up. Now, there's still impediments about the Chinese economy and companies operating there. One of them is capital controls. Capital can't leave the country. Is that going to hold China back? I'm seeing this play out in Silicon Valley, for instance, in the venture capital sector. We're seeing funds that were getting capital from China no longer being able to raise those new funds. And they're having to restructure so we're starting to see this play out in venture capital, which obviously is a very important part of this whole picture, funding all these startups. And I'm seeing it with uh, some of the startups, too, uh, that were dependent upon cross-border capital. It's more difficult to get that money out of China today. And uh, they are uh, looking more inwardly within Western sources now. Now, Rebecca, you've been following the Chinese tech scene for, I don't want to admit it, but yes, 20 years, when you look back and see the incredible progress they have made, and then you look forward, where do you expect China to go? Where will they be in another 20 years? 
I needed to write this new book, Tech Titans of China, because of the amazing progress that's been made by China over the past decade or so, since my first book, Silicon Dragon, was published. But now I think we're going to continue to see this trajectory. In fact, I think China is going to become more reliant on its own technology, its own strengths, as the Western world pushes back against China. We're pushing China into a corner. We're pushing China to be more innovative than ever. I think we're in for another leapfrog. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ken. The open society needs people like you. The Economist is holding its annual Ideas Summit, called the Open Future Festival, on October 5th in Chicago, Manchester, and Hong Kong. You can join Economist journalists and some of the world's most vibrant thinkers to debate the critical issues of our day and have your views challenged along the way. There are limited tickets available for the Chicago and Manchester events. To register, go to economist.com festival. That's economist.com slash festival. And for our podcast listeners, we have a very special discount. Simply use the promo code econradio and get 15% off. That's right, one five, 15% off. So go to economist.com slash festival and join the discussion for an open future. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, regular Babbage listeners know that we occasionally give away a book on the show to the person who answers one of our imaginative questions with insight and pith. A fortnight ago, we asked, what aspect of the physical universe are we not aware of today because we cannot measure it? But over the next 50 years, we will be able to uncover because we will be able to detect it. We received a cornucopia of answers, from measuring time to the Irish backstop, a reference to Brexit. But our favorite, and the winner, comes from Laszlo Arato, a professor of digital electronics in Switzerland. Here is a portion of his answer. The fact today is that most of our observations of the world is based on electromagnetic waves. We measure everything with EM waves, radioactivity, X-rays, light, infrared, radar, radio, etc. The few exceptions are tactile measurements, sound, ultrasound, and astronomical gravitation waves. So how likely is it that we are missing something, not just registering it because our equipment does not see it? Because it might be non-electromagnetical. In other words, most of the things we detect are based on electromagnetic waves, and we have to think about the world in a different way that's non-electromagnetical to measure it in an entirely new way to uncover new phenomenon that physics has so far not considered. Congratulations, Laszlo. He has won a copy of What is Real? The Unfinished Quest for the Meaning of Quantum Physics by Adam Becker. Thanks to everyone who emailed us a reply and participated in the contest. 
And finally, the scintillating sound of smooth sand. Try saying that ten times fast. It's a tongue twister, like she sells seashells on the seashore. But what about she scientifically studies seashells along the seashore to fight back against sand thieves? Well, that's what some scientists are striving to succeed at. The demand for sand is serious, so much so that a decade ago an entire beach, some 500 truckloads, was stolen from a resort in North Jamaica. Now, scientists think they've found a way to tell if sand has been stolen. But how does it actually work? David Adam is writing about this for The Economist. Hello, David. Hello. David, why is stolen sand such a big issue? Paradoxically, there's not enough sand to go around. Although it looks like there's loads of sand, it's used massively in construction buildings, and there's a boom in buildings, especially in the developing world. And basically, they can't dig enough sand up out of the ground quick enough. So as a result, people steal it. I mean, sometimes that's the easier way of doing it. They either will steal it from um, beaches, for example, where it's already there, or they can illegally mine it, you know, because a lot of these countries, you need a permit, and they'll just go out and do it anyway, dig a hole in the middle of the night and dig up sand. Okay, so what is the process for identifying what sand sounds like? Essentially, sand is a collection of bits, and between those bits is gas, and some of those bits, when you put them in water or acid, dissolve into gas. So if you take a handful of sand, in this case, they drop it into a a very mild acid, the sand burps. It releases the gas that's stuck between its different grains. It's usually carbonate chemicals, so... It remains of shells of mollusks and corals and things like that that are part of the sand. As that dissolves, that produces carbon dioxide gas. And the evolution of this gas, all these bubbles, change the sound properties of the liquid. So for our listeners who are wondering what a quote-unquote sand burp sounds like, this is what you would hear if you were actually to run the experiment, although in this instance we're using sodium carbonate. The noise that you can hear is a magnetic stirrer. Maybe you used one at school, you know, these little like jumping beans that fiddle around at the bottom of a beaker of water or acid and mix it together. And the sound you can hear is it just hitting the side of the beaker. Um, the reason you hear the sound is because the sound waves obviously travel through the liquid into the air. And the more bubbles there are in the liquid, the slower that sound moves. So what you will have heard there is a deepening of the note or of the tone. And that's because it's taking longer for the sound to reach us, basically. It's almost like the beaker of liquid becomes a loudspeaker. Effectively, you're hearing the bubbles in the water because they slow down the sound and that makes the pitch deeper. So how are scientists using this? Each batch of sand basically has its own signature sound. And depending on where you get it from, either where the beach is or even particular positions on a beach. So if you have, say, 10 samples and you have a reference sample, you know this came from, I don't know, a particular beach, and you give them 10 samples and say which sample came from this particular beach, they can just basically match the acoustic fingerprint. And this acoustic fingerprint that applies to all the different sands in the world is unique. What else can we do with this technique? In terms of sand, you can use it to see what happens, for example, to the sand that people put on beaches as a way of trying to protect the coast. So this study came out of the Netherlands, where clearly that's a big issue because most of the country is below sea level. In terms of a sort of an analytical technique, you can use it to pretty much distinguish any kind of powder that has gas 
wrapped up in it. So they've done it with salt, for example. There's lots of supposed Himalayan salt on the market, you know, very expensive table salt. But most of it's fake. I mean, there is more soul than is ever been mined. Um, you can do it with pharmaceutical compounds. You can find contaminants, maybe, because a contaminant would change the acoustic signature. So, for example, that terrible scandal a few years ago in China with, with baby milk powder when people died, you wouldn't necessarily know what it was that the, the powder was contaminated with, but you would see that the signal had changed and therefore it wasn't pure. Now, I'm told that listeners can do this at home, and it's called the hot chocolate method. Please explain. Yeah, it doesn't even have to be hot chocolate. So that's what it was called, because the scientist who discovered it was making hot chocolate. But almost the easiest way is just salt. Get get a cup of water and add decent amount of salt, you know, a good tablespoon worth of salt, and stir it. And as you stir it, make sure that you sort of clatter the side of the glass with the spoon and you'll hear a, you know, a clink, 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 and then in time it will deepen. And then once all of that salt has dissolved and all of the, the gas has evolved from it, then you'll hear the sound go back to, to what it was before. Interesting. So I can find out if it's Cadbury's hot chocolate or if it's sort of Godiva hot chocolate. Yeah, probably. You might need a very sensitive microphone, but um, maybe you've got very sensitive ears. It's possible. Look, David, thank you very much. No, you're welcome. And that's all for this edition of Babbage. Please don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts. It's important so more people can discover and enjoy the show. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, aspiring to travel in a flying taxi, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.